The corridors of the Asfandia long-range communications base were narrow but surprisingly tall. Obviously, Leia thought, it had been designed that way with its Gotal commander in mind, whose twin energy-sensing horns stretched a meter above Leia's head. The tour, given by the commander and her security chief, a Nogri named Eniknar, shouldn't have taken long. But Ashpadar insisted on introducing Leia and Droma to everyone they met. Han had opted to stay back with the ship, because he felt that someone needed to keep an eye on her. This is our extravehicular bay. Ashpadar opened an internal airlock to reveal five speeder bikes. Next to them stood a cupboard containing enviro suits suitable for the dense, frigid atmosphere outside. Leia nodded. Half a plan was forming in her mind. If the other half fell into place, the speeder bikes would be essential. When the tour was complete, Ashpadar took them to her cabin, which doubled as an office. She took a seat on one side of her expansive desk, while Leia, Droma, and the security chief sat on the other. This is a secure environment, Eniknar assured her in a sibilant voice. What you're about to see hath not been revealed to the rest of the crew. Ashpadar opened a safe on the wall opposite them and revealed a leathery ball with a supple ridge surface. A villop, Leia said. This one was found two days ago in a maintenance retheth deep in the belly of the bath, Enignar said. We'd just been conducting low-key security sweeps when the Yuzhan Vong arrived, Ashpadar said. Obviously, survival takes preference in the short term. Until we can locate the traitor, I've kept the villa here, where no one can access it but me. Ashpadar's desk comlink bleeped, interrupting her. Yes. A message from the Millennium Falcon. Patch it through, Rydal. A hollow display came to life on Ashpadar's desk. It showed the disposition of the Yuzhan Vong and Imperial forces over opposite hemispheres, keeping each other at bay. As Leia watched, the image zoomed into the surface to show entry points for a small Yuzhan Vong force that had managed to make it down to the atmosphere while the battle had been raging. We've got company, Droma said. What should we do? Eniknar hissed. As long as no stray emissions alert the Yuzhan Vong to our presence here, we should be safe for the moment, Leia said. The traitor inside the base is what we need to be focusing upon. Ashpadar stood and bowed her high-horned head. I am grateful for your assistance. Eniknar escorted them back to the Falcon. No one spoke for the duration of the short trip, but once they were safely back on board the freighter and the security chief had gone, Droma immediately turned to Leia and shook his head. I don't like him, he said. Who, Eniknar? Yeah, Eniknar, Droma said. Leia nodded. There was something not quite right about him. Droma's eyes studied her closely. You have a plan? Maybe, she said thoughtfully. But I have someone to talk to first. Captain Maine brought Grand Admiral Pelion up to date via the comm unit. Jaina was still with Tahiri, Jag by her side, listening in via the comm unit installed in the Salonia's medical wards. Pelion came through loud and clear from right to rule. 
Jaina's mother had managed to open contact with those in orbit via a transmission from a modified research droid. So the Falcon and the relay base are effectively trapped, Pelion said, once Captain Main had finished. That's correct, sir. And there's been no sign of those ground troops yet? None, sir. That won't last long. Commander Vorik is impatient. Our first priority is to get someone down there to help them, Jaina said. At the moment, Vorik is hanging in there because he feels confident in finding the base. If he has priorities elsewhere, then his time isn't unlimited. What about the traitor on the ground? Jag asked. How are we going to coordinate any sort of action, knowing it could be undermined at any time? We can do little about the traitor down there, Pelion said. Our issue is to focus on how to get a team onto the surface. Vorik has Asfandia effectively closed off. Neither of us can get down there. I think I might be able to help, Tahiri said. All I need is access to a Yuzhan Vang hulk. There might be a living Villop choir on one of them. Give me that, and I'll give you the window you require. And how will you do that exactly? Pelion asked. I will tell Vorik that I intend to lead the Falcon and the relay base into a trap, she said. He'll suspect a double cross. Perhaps, Tahiri said easily. But he won't be able to afford not to take advantage of the offer. The Grand Admiral still didn't seem convinced, and Jaina could understand why. What if Tahiri really did betray Han and Leia, not Vorik at all? What if she was planning a triple cross with Pelion himself on the receiving end? I trust her, Jaina said. I trust her with my life. Very well, Pelion said after a moment's thought, seemingly satisfied. Everything was ready. A shuttle supplied by the Imperials had stocked the gutted Yorick Strontha picket ship analog that had once been called Hirosha Ghoul, a name that meant Price of Pain to Hiri New. Jaina had immediately rechristened it Collaborator upon assuming control. Earlier, Tahiri had located the lingering remnants of a Villop choir. Tahiri took a deep breath and activated the choir. I, Raina of Domain Quad, seek to humble myself before Commander Bashith Vorik, she said loudly and clearly in the Yuzhan Vong language. A liquid, static-filled voice tried to speak to her, but emerged as nothing but grating vowels. She tried again. Reina of Domain Quad calls from the valiant husk of Hirosha Ghoul. More grating sounds. Then suddenly, a harsh, guttural voice coalesced out of the noise. The Commander does not waste time with failed domains. Domain Quad did not fail. I am Reina, a warrior, shaped to obey. Hear me out if you wish your enemies delivered. There was a slight delay. Then, after a pause sufficient to be insulting, a new voice growled at her. Speak, feeble one. Do I have the honor of the Commander's attention? No. You are unworthy to inhabit the same universe as him. Speak. I bring intelligence of the enemy's movements, she said. 
Yet another pause, this one longer than the previous. She suspected she was being transferred to someone still higher along the hierarchical chain. Sure enough, when the quiet was finally broken, the voice belonged to another warrior. Your claims offend my ears. You have the time it would take for me to drain the blood from a heretic to convince me not to blow your worthless life out of the skies. And so it went. The process was laborious, but necessary. Finally, the roughest, foulest voice of all spoke to her from the damaged Villip choir. It had to be the commander. Your visage offends my eyes, he said slowly, precisely, venom dripping from every syllable. You will offer yourself as sacrifice to Yun Yumka at the first opportunity to ensure that no others attempt what the Quad heretics attempted. Tahiri lowered her eyes. Lord Commander, I shall obey. The Slayer may take me through your very hands if you wish. Once I have delivered victory over the infidels to you, I will have no further reason to live. Speak then of how this victory may be accomplished. I have convinced the Jedi that I can be trusted, and that I will provide safe passage onto the surface of the planet Esfandia. In exchange for their trust, and for your assistance in expediting our safe journey, I will betray them at the first opportunity and reveal to you the location of the communications base you seek. How do I know that you can be trusted? You can see me well, Great Commander. The image is poor, but clear enough to cause me revulsion. Tahiri tipped her head back. The old scars on her forehead burned as she sent the force through them. Inflicted by the Shaper Mijan Quad during the implantation of Reina, Tahiri had kept the scars as a memento of her trials. Under her will, the deep wounds opened afresh. Blood trickled down her temples and face as her skin parted and peeled back. Enough! You will be given the chance you request. The Millennium Falcon seemed empty without Droma and Han. Leia had little to do but wait as the plan was put into effect. The mission to the communications transponder had left two hours earlier. Leia had been there as Han had suited up and tested the controls of his speeder bike. The suits were designed to keep the deep cold of Esfandi at bay, as well as provide the right atmospheric mix for several species. They could accommodate many different body types, which was fortunate given the people on the mission. As well as Han, there was another human communications technician, the Nogri security head, Eniknar, where I can keep an eye on him, as Han had put it, a hefty Klaatuinian security guard, and Droma, whose tail was snugly tucked away into a pouch on his left thigh. Leia had kissed his visor and wished him luck. Once outside the base, and beyond the confines of the nesting plane tunnels, the five speeder bikes were under strict, calm silence. The slightest transmission would alert the Yuzhan Vong ground teams to their whereabouts. 
If they maintained the ban on emissions and kept low to the surface, it was unlikely they would be discovered. Unless, of course, they were unlucky enough to run into one of those ground teams along the way. The atmosphere was gloomy and close when they reached the floor of the valley. Jason looked wearily around him, sensing hostility, but not able to identify its source. Their destination wasn't far away. A narrow river, flowing noisily along the bottom of the valley, had been blocked by a rockfall, forming a dam around which a stand of boros grew. We're going in there? He asked the pharaoh ahead of them. Yes, she replied, as curtly as she had to every other question he'd asked. Mind telling me why? You'll find out soon enough. They circled the muddy lake and came to the natural dam that was its genesis. The stand of Boras was densest there, towering above them. Their trunks merged and joined in one particular space, isolating a blackened pit with a stone floor. Charred tentacles rose from its edges like frozen smoke. Jason looked nervously around him as the party continued their descent. He and Saba kept to the rear, stepping carefully from root to root down the steep slope. At the bottom of the pit, the kidnappers came to a halt again. Senshi ordered the stretcher bearing the magister to be placed on the buckled stone floor, Danny's beside her. This one is concerned, Saba muttered to Jason, her eyes searching the gloom. The life energies here are tangled. We are all in danger. Jason confronted Senshi with his concerns. What is this place, Senshi? Why are we here? Boras have a complex life cycle, the head kidnapper said. Just like all organic systems, there can be injuries, diseases, cancers. This is one such place where the natural patterns of Seacott have been stunted, twisted. There are malignant Boras, just as there can be malignant people. On the whole, such Boras are perfectly safe. Unless you disturb their seeding grounds, of course, in which case you are in great danger. Where are they, these seeding grounds? Jason asked. A sudden swirling of antipathy swept around them, radiating from the Boras. Senshi smiled. We're standing on them. Saba had had enough. She snatched her lightsaber from her side and ignited it with a touch of its activation stud. The action seemed to whip the malignant Boras to a new level of excitement. Saba felt subsonic rumblings pass through her claws to the pads of her feet as the tentacles of the trees flailed over their heads, snapping and crackling like an angry brush fire. It's okay, Saba, Jason said, stepping up to her and motioning for her to lower her weapon. Despite her reservations, she deactivated her lightsaber and lowered it as he requested. He nodded his appreciation, then faced Senshi. Please, before someone gets hurt, can't you explain to us what is going on? That all depends on what you intend to do about it. I don't understand. You will, soon enough. 
Before Saba had chance to react, Senchi was on the ground beside the Magister, one hand across her throat and the other pressing one of the organic lightning rods against her temple. Move and I'll kill her, he said to the stunned Jedi Knights. Saba froze, her thumb hesitating over her lightsaber's activation stud. This isn't what I expected, the Magister said, her eyes flickering open to look at those gathered around her. That was the idea, Senshi hissed. Now what, Jedi? he asked Jason. Now what? Now we'll see, Mara whispered, as Dirac hurried back into the habitat, armed, Luke hoped, with the results of the analysis of the anomalous gravity readings from Mobus's third moon. Dirac whispered to Raoul in a language that Luke couldn't understand. Then, as one, both the Pharaohans turned to face him. Our sensors detect no gravitic anomaly, Raoul said. Your comrades must have been mistaken with their readings. Perhaps you are being lied to, Luke said. Tell me, who did your information come from? From Seacott, of course, via the Boras network, Raoul replied in a tone that suggested Luke had to be a fool for even asking. Luke nodded his understanding, raising the comlink to his lips. Captain Yage, I want you to send a flight of ties to investigate that anomaly. I have a flight on standby now, sir. Yage responded immediately. They'll break formation in ten seconds. What? Dirac stepped forward, her face pinched in alarm. Good work, Captain. You may authorize them to use destructive force if necessary. You can't do this! Dirac protested heatedly. If you aren't prepared to do what needs to be done, Luke said smoothly, then I will do it for you. This is unacceptable! Raoul exclaimed. Recall those fighters immediately, or... Mara rose to her feet and placed both hands defiantly on her hips. Or what, exactly? Luke sent a mental prompt to Mara, and she backed off. Suppose one of the far outsider ships managed to survive the attack we saw. What do you think would happen if the pilot of that ship slipped out of your bubble of safety and reported to his superiors about what he found here? Before anyone could speak again, Luke's comlink bleeped. He answered the call. Yes? The fighters are approaching the moon. I'll patch a live telemetry feed through to Jade Shadow. Techly can relay the information to you from there. There was a delay of two seconds before the Chadra fan's voice came over the line. I'll do my best to describe what's going on. The Ties are conducting a preliminary survey of the moon now. One of them is going in to investigate. Tell them to be careful, Luke said. They flushed it out. It looks like a coral skipper and it's making a break for it. Luke spoke rapidly into the comlink. That ship cannot be allowed to leave the system. Whatever is required, it has to be stopped. The skip is evading pursuit, using Mobus's gravity to whip itself out to the edge of the system. Is it going to get away? Luke asked. It might. If there are any intruders in our system, Durak said, then Seacut will be able to deal with them. 
If we can't catch this thing, Mara said, then how do you expect to? Seacott has powers far beyond your own. If you insist there is something in our system evading our senses, then Seacott can choose to destroy everything in that sector just to be on the safe side. Mara glanced at Luke, waiting for his decision. But for the moment, he had no words to offer, no orders to give. His mind was stuck on how Seacott could act across such a vast distance quickly enough to stop the fleeing Coral Skipper. Conventional weapons simply wouldn't work in this instance, he knew. And the Force, of course, wouldn't work against the Yuzhan Vong. And even if it did... Seacott must not act, Luke said finally. Call it off. I don't care how you do it, but Seacott must not attack that Coral Skipper. Taking his comlink, he quickly contacted the Widowmaker. Captain Yage, recall the ties and return to orbit. Under no circumstances are you to provoke Seacott. The Coral Skipper, Techly said over the comlink. Something's happening to it. The ride down was bumpy. Jag's hands itched to take control of the ship and smooth out their descent, but he couldn't. Although both sides knew that Collaborator was a ruse, it was important that the pretense was maintained. Something rattled violently from behind him. Are you sure everything's securely stowed back there? He called out to Arth Gixon, the Imperial Sergeant who had volunteered for the mission. Positive, the sleek black-haired man responded. They were a diverse group, and among them they represented just about everyone who had a stake in the outcome of the battle. Jag and Josel stood for the Chiss. Gixon came from the Empire, as did the six military-issue speeder bikes they'd brought with them on the mission. The Galactic Alliance was represented by Jaina and Enten Edelmage, and Tahiri carried the Yuzhan Vong inside her now. Jaina unclipped her safety harness after finishing priming the autopilot. All right, let's get those speeders warmed up. The six of them headed back to where the vehicles rested in makeshift harnesses. Jag donned his armored Envirosuit's helmet and enabled his Mazer communication systems. Jag took a speeder and punched its repulsor engine into life. The air was rapidly filling with the high-pitched whining of machines eager for freedom. One by one, they all confirmed their status. Charges armed, Jaina said. We are go in three, two, one. Jag felt the explosion through his suit. It was immediately overwhelmed by the shock of the hull breaking apart. In no time at all, the alien hulk had cracked open completely as per the plan. They were sucked out one by one into a swirling hurricane. Jag fought the turbulence, feeling his speeder kick in as he approached the hard ground below. He didn't have time to know the locations of the others, but the Mazer system kept tabs on all of them, displaying their locations as red dots on his helmet's display. Everyone okay? Jaina's voice came clear and clipped over the Mazer intercom. The dots converged on hers, as everyone confirmed that they'd exited the ship safely. We're a little off target, she said, taking the center position of a triangular aerial formation. Our heading is 30 degrees south, five kilometers. Sergeant Gixon, you lead the way. 
the Imperial gunned his speeder bike in that direction, quickly accelerating to maximum velocity. The rest followed close behind. Gixson led them dodging and weaving through a forest of slender columns that resembled the trunks of petrified trees. A thin spire rose out of the gloom ahead. This, Jag knew, was the transponder rendezvous point. A snarl of speeder engines from Jag's right brought him around in a tight turn. A buzz of static sounded in his earpieces as his comm located and locked onto a signal. Else could be using these frequencies. You worry too much, Droma. That's what has kept me alive this long. Dad? Jaina's voice cut across the chatter. Your signal is coming in loud and clear. As it should be. We're right on top of you. Five more speeder bikes appeared out of the gloom. As the wake of the speeder bike settled, shadowy circular shapes drifted in from the gloom. Jag was startled until he realized that this was what Droma had meant by the locals. How close are we to being ready? Jaina asked. Han introduced the communications tech they brought along to reprogram the massive transponder. He explained that it would take the man about half an hour to bypass the automated systems and give the transmitter its new instructions. Jaina nodded. Get started immediately then. We'll prepare the perimeter. She dismounted her speeder bike to dole out the mines with the help of Edelmage, her father and Droma, and a Klaatuinian security guard from the relay base. Jag unloaded his mines, then swept the area with Josel to make sure it was clear. Only once did the sensors on his suit detect anything remotely threatening. A hissing rumble, like a blast of white noise from a long way away, rose out of the background static. It didn't sound like a Sikh Saru, the Yuzhan Vong equivalent of an airspeeder, but Jag called an alert just to be on the safe side. Yorick Trima, Tahiri said, one of the landing craft. Ten minutes later, the Comtech announced that the transponder was ready. Tahiri gave him the message, the last piece of the puzzle. Start the timer ticking now. The 11 speeder bikes accelerated away from the transponder, scattering the cold ones in their wake. Sergeant Gixson led the retreat to safer ground. When the sound of their engines faded, there was less than 30 seconds to go. Jag used the time to load his Charak blaster, fastening it to the saddle by his right thigh so that it was easily accessible should he need it. Barely had he finished doing this when the giant transponder awoke with a blast of static to relay Tahiri's message to all the Yuzhan Vong hanging in wait above Esfandia. Pelion glanced up from the charts before him as an alarm sounded on the Bridge of Right to Rule. Report. Audio signal from the ground, sir. Let's hear it. The voice of the young female Jedi filled the bridge, spitting and snarling in the Yuzhan Vong language. The electromagnetic radiation carrying the message radiated from a point in Asfandia's surface and out into space. No one with ears could miss it for millions of kilometers, which was the idea, of course. Ten seconds passed. Twenty. Every sensor at right to rule's disposal was focused on the source of the signal. When it came, there was no mistaking it. 
Bright orange heat blossomed on the infrared scan. It flowered to white intensity, then faded to a red background. We have a detonation, his aide called. Pelion's aide looked up at him. It started, sir. This isn't right, the Magister said. Quiet! Senshi pushed the lightning rod harder into Javatha's temple, provoking a wince of discomfort. I want to hear what the Jedi have to say. Jason took a deep breath. What he did next would be critical. His options were limited. He and Saba could easily use the Force to take out the Faroan kidnappers, but that would leave Danny and Jabatha at Senshi's mercy. No, there had to be a solution that didn't involve aggression. Ignoring the rain on his face, shutting out the booming of thunder from the sky and the strange cries of the Boras, he extended himself into the warmth of the forest and went searching. Up to the tops of the trees, where static electricity sizzled from the storm and wind whipped leaves in furious waves. And it was there that he found what he was looking for, a knot of intense anger that was the heart of the malignant stand of Boras. As tentacles rained down on the seeding ground, Jason's mind slid into the convoluted spaces of the outraged plant. Violated! The primitive mind shrieked. Protect! We're not harming you, Jason assured. We'll be gone soon. Even as he said it, though, he could sense that advanced concepts like future benefits would be beyond the creature's simple understanding. Bones make us strong. You are strong enough, Jason told it. Stronger! Isolation leads to stagnation he whispered. Stagnation leads to corruption. Corruption leads to death. The mind of the Boros exploded in a shower of bright sparks. Jason's eyes snapped open. Saba was standing over him and Danny, shielding them with her lightsaber. Above and around them was a tightly knit cage of angry Boros tentacles poised, ready to attack. Then, with a smooth hissing sound, the tentacles retracted, sliding smoothly back up into the canopy, their pointed tips curling in on themselves so that they were no longer a threat. It's okay, Saba. It's over. And yet, said a voice from behind him, in a very real sense, it's only just beginning. Jason turned, unable to credit his ears. But you're dead. Vergere didn't reply. She just stood in front of Jason, smiling faintly, as though waiting for him to understand. Jaina tensed as the Yorick Trima rose around her. Then there was a bright flash and a sound like the peal of thunder. The detonation acted as a signal to her speeder bikes. With a snarl of engines, they burst out of their hiding place and split up into groups of two, weapons armed and ready. The Yorick Trima had caught the mine on its underbelly, crippling it. Flyerth approaching, crackled Enignar's voice over the Mazercom. 
Jaina took a second to check her tactical display. There were no blips in the display, so clearly the flyers weren't friendly. She took another pass around the downed Yorick Trima and joined the security chief in meeting the flyers head on. A formation of seven Sikh Saru peeled apart in disarray as blaster fire cut hot lines between them. Jaina braked back in a tight turn, then came around again to play havoc with their rear vents. Watch your rear, Jaina! Jag's voice came out of the fierce clamor of battle, startlingly clear over the comm. She looked over her shoulder and saw two Sikh Saru jockeying for attack position. Her face was locked in a grim smile as she rounded a steep rock shelf and gunned her speeder in a tight port turn, too fast for the flyers behind her to see or imitate. By the time they came wide around the same corner, she was pushing her speeder to its maximum acceleration in order to get as far away from the area as quickly as possible. The explosion as the two flyers hit the mine picked her up and threw her forward on a blast of hot air. The world exploded with stars as her speeder clipped the rock formation and sent her flying. The Coral Skipper, Techly said. It's changing. I don't understand, Mara said. Changing how? It's changing shape, and its gravitic emissions are adopting a different profile. You're so not ready, came a voice off to Luke's right. It's almost funny. Luke turned at the new voice and found himself staring at a young boy standing in the entrance to the habitat's upper floor. He was about 12 years of age with blue eyes. Is that? Mara started. Luke crouched down before the boy, staring in wonderment at the ghostly image of Anakin Skywalker. My father? He finished for her. He shook his head. No, it's not. It's Seacott. The boy smiled broadly now, his eyes shining in a manner that suggested pride. You are wise, Luke Skywalker. Why have you taken this form? Luke asked. The boy shrugged, the amusement behind his eyes suddenly undercut with sadness. Everyone with power faces a choice. This is how your father appeared to me many years ago. He and I faced the same choice. We are both still waiting to find out whether we chose correctly. Master Skywalker, came Captain Yeager's voice over the comlink, interrupting the surreal reunion. The unidentified vessel is still approaching Zonama Seacott and is refusing to respond to our hails. We're on full alert and ready to intercept. You just have to give the order. Stand down, Arian, Luke said. That ship isn't about to attack us. The image of his father moved to the center of the room. Luke faced him, feeling the pressure of the planet's attention upon him. He shook his head, wondering why he hadn't realized sooner what was going on. So tell me, Luke said, have we performed to your satisfaction? Jag! Back here! The comm message was from Tahiri. She was warding off four reptoids, two of them armed with kufis. The other two were throwing thud bugs whenever they saw an opening. Jag swept in low across the fight, 
and dropped the thermal mine in the middle of the reptoids, shooting at the two with Koofies on his way out. When the thermal mine went off, bits of reptoids were sent flying every which way. Guiding his bucking speeder around in a circle, he came back to check on Tahiri and the others. What happened? he asked. Jaina took a fall, Tahiri explained, getting up from where she dropped. She lent Jaina a hand as she climbed to her feet. Jag brought his speeder to a halt and jumped off to see if he could help. When Jaina spoke, her voice was thick and groggy. My feet are cold. Her suit is failing, Tahiri said. We have to get her out of here. I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings, Droma said, pointing over Jag's shoulder. But... Jag turned and saw the reptoids getting up and regrouping. We don't have much time. Where's Jaina's speeder? Over there, Tahiri said. Jag looked and saw the tangled wreck. Okay then. She can take mine and head back to the relay base. I'll hitch a lift with Droma. No, I'll take her, Droma said. She shouldn't fly alone. And besides which, I know the way. Reluctant though he was to lose another fighter, Jag nodded in agreement. Get going. We'll cover your backs. Droma helped Jaina to Jag's speeder. Keep an eye on Enochnar. We will, Tahiri said. With a brisk wave, Droma sped off into the gloom. So where are our speeders? Jag said, firing his pistol at a knot of reptoids who looked about ready to charge. Tahiri pointed at a crater behind the line of reptoids. A Sikh Saru took them out before I could take it out. She tensed. Try and keep up, Colonel. We're getting out of here. With a powerful force-augmented spring, she somersaulted up onto the boulder they'd been sheltering in front of and began blasting the reptoids from above. Leia paced nervously across the Falcon's passenger bay, wishing there was something she could do. In orbit, things were beginning to change. Responding to the lack of rapid progress on the ground, Vorik was moving ships into strike range for a bombing run. Unless the ground troops delivered, or appeared to deliver anyway, a decisive victory to the Yuzhan Vong, things in orbit would soon get very ugly once again. At least the relay base was safe, though. Thinking of the base commander, she clicked open the comm to Ashpadar's office. Commander Ashpadar, she said. If you're interested, I have new telemetry from Pelion. There was no response. Sea caught! Jabatha's startled cry brought Jason out of his stunned daze. He was gaping at the image of Vergere, where she stood opposite Senshi, her diminutive figure commanding everyone's attention. Seacott does this, Jabath explained. It appears as my father sometimes, or as your grandfather. Sometimes it appears as me, and that is the most disconcerting of all. Why now? Saba asked, her voice a growl of puzzlement. Why not before? It did before, Jason said, when we arrived. That wasn't the magister Uncle Luke and Aunt Mara spoke to. It was Seacott in Jabatha's form. Jason looked around. You're testing us, aren't you? 
Seacut shook its fringed head, smiling. I'm testing you, Jason Solo. And did I pass? Instead of answering his question, Seacut faced Senshi. The elderly Pharaoh immediately removed the lightning rod from Jabatha's temple and climbed to his feet. The magister sat up, rubbing at her neck where the kidnapper had been holding her. Seacott then glanced over to Danny on the other stretcher, and the young scientist stirred with a soft moan. Jason went over to her, kneeling beside her in the mud. Danny? He could barely contain his relief. Danny opened her eyes slowly, blinking into the light rain falling across her face. Where am I? It's all right, Danny, Jason reassured her. You're safe now. Her gaze fell upon the Pharaohans standing around her, some with their weapons held loosely at their sides. Danny's eyes widened in surprise even more at the sight of Vergère. But I thought... It's not Vergère, Jason said. Danny turned back to Jason, shaking her head as though the questions it carried were too heavy. I don't understand. I think I'm beginning to, he said. This whole thing was a setup designed to see how I react under threat. Do I fight or flee? Do I defend my loved ones? Or do I use them as shields? Or do you attempt to take the middle ground, Seacott said, and allow both sides to win? I just want to know why, Jason said. I had to know what manner of warrior I was dealing with before responding to your request. I'm uncomfortable with the term warrior, he said. A Jedi stands for peace, not war. You do not believe in fighting for peace? For freedom? I believe that there should be a way of achieving peace other than fighting, he said. Have you found it, Jason Solo? He looked down to the ground, reluctant to admit his failure to his former teacher, even though he knew in himself that it wasn't really her. No, he admitted quietly. No, I haven't. No word from the ground as yet, sir. What about those bombers? Orbital insertion for surface run confirmed. Pelion acknowledged the report with a nod. Hit them hard. His aide turned away to issue the orders. Relentless immediately fired its main engines and ascended to a lower orbit. TIE fighters poured from its launching bays by the hundreds. Every turbo laser and heavy laser cannon targeted the bombers preparing to demolish the transponder on the surface of Esfandia. Pelion didn't doubt that Vorak would respond immediately thereby ensuring an escalation in the battle, but that was unavoidable. Fire flashed on all screens as Imperial fighters engaged the Yuzhan Vong. As though that were the spark that lit the fire, conflagrations broke out within minutes in a dozen other locations. The massive warship Kur Hashan came about in a ripple of gravitic disturbances. Every Dovin basal on its hull and in its engine housings wielding arcane energies in order to prepare it for battle. All ships, Pelion ordered, engage at will. 
Tahiri ducked. A kufi swished over her head. With a grunt, she came back up with her lightsaber in a two-handed blow and drove it into the reptoid's chest. The alien staggered back with an expression of agonized surprise on its face, then toppled over into the snow. Jag, over here! She hurried up the steep slope with the Chiss pilot following close behind. At the top of the slope, she paused to collect her bearings, mindful that her silhouette would make an easy target for anyone on either side of the ridge, then hurried down the far side. In the distance, delineated as a red dot on her helmet's display, was an Imperial speeder cruising the far side of the transponder. She tried hailing it by waving her arms. Hey! Over here! Tahiri, is that you? Han's voice came loud and clear over the comm. And Jag, too. We've lost our speeders. I'm on my way. A dark shadow slid across the dimly visible horizon as Han returned with another speeder. The second pilot, Enten Edelmage, sprayed the reptoids coming down the ridge after them, then skidded to a halt in front of Jag. Jag jumped onto Edelmage's craft, and together, the two speeder bikes raced from the howling reptoids. They split up briefly to locate the other speeders from the party, then regrouped on a relatively clear side of the battle zone. Only one speeder remained unaccounted for, and that belonged to the relay base security chief, a fact that only made Han's scowl cut deeper into his face. We can't hide the fact that the base isn't here for much longer, Han said especially if Enignar has gone over. The sooner we get out of here and finish it, the better. There were no arguments. The communications tech produced a remote timer and keyed a short code into it. He waited a second, then shook the timer and tried again. There's something wrong. The dish must be damaged. I'll go, Tahiri said without hesitation. And I'll go with her, Jag said. They rearranged speeders again while the ComTech explained what needed to be done. The detonator control box was hidden at the base of the transponder. Assuming the box itself was intact, all they'd have to do was input the code into its keypad. The explosion would take out the transponder and anything else within a hundred meter radius. They would have only a minute to get clear of the blast. When I became aware... Seekot told Luke. The first thing I asked myself was, where did I come from? I have spent decades examining my being in an attempt to unravel the truth of myself. Anakin Skywalker once described me as an immensity, yet at the same time, a unity. All conscious beings could be described as such by the creatures that inhabit them. The people who inhabit my surface are as important to my well-being as the boras, the atmosphere, or the sun. Without them, I would be barren, fallow. They're part of your mind? Hegarty asked. The image shook its head. All you need to understand, for the purposes of this conversation, is that I need them as much as they need me. Without them, it is possible that I might never have existed. Or worse, I might have grown stunted and feeble like the rogue Boras that Jason recently encountered. The mention of his nephew immediately grabbed Luke's attention. 
You know where they are? Seacott nodded. I'm speaking to them now. Jag came in low, relying on the large amount of dust kicked up by mines and energy discharges to give them cover. Soon they were ducking through a fence of horizontal girders and into the transponder infrastructure. Sure enough, the detonator control was exactly where he'd said it would be. Jag hunkered down next to it, opening the top of the device with the first of three codes he'd been given. The second code gained him access to the timer menu. He tapped in the digits one at a time while she watched to make sure he didn't mistype anything. Just as he was keying in the second to last digit though, something black shot past his faceplate. He jumped back as the glowing controls burst into a shower of sparks. Two more thud bugs came darting in. Tahiri burned them out of the air with her lightsaber, just as a Yuzhan Vong warrior bore down upon them waving an amphistaff. Tahiri shouted something guttural in return and met him halfway. It looked for a moment as though she was being driven back by heavy blows from the amphistaff. But then, just when he felt sure she was beaten, she ducked beneath the weapon and delivered a lazy-looking slash that opened the warrior up from groin to chin. Tahiri didn't even appear out of breath when she returned her attention to Jag. How bad is the damage? she asked. The control surface was blackened and melted. Its glow was completely gone. When Jag touched it, there was no response. I think it's just the controls that are damaged. There might be another way to activate it. Something shuffled out of the darkness toward them. It wasn't another warrior, but a Galactic Alliance issue Enviro suit, limbed with frost. Enignar! Tahiri took some of the base security chief's weight onto her as the Nogri almost collapsed to the ground next to them. Jag leaned into the wounded alien. Manual relief. Enignar's soft voice was even more muted than usual. Coded. Will it set off the bombs? Nod. Is there a delay? Shake. So whoever sets it off will die. Another nod. Me. The Nogri wheezed. I'll do it. I know the code. No, Jag said. How do we even know we can trust Enignar? Droma warned us to be careful of him, right? Leia thinks he's a traitor. What if this is a ruse? It's not a ruse, Tahiri said. Jag knew it made no sense to argue. The Nogri's strength was ebbing. If he left his decision too long the situation might be taken out of their hands. He placed the control unit against Enignar's chest, and Tahiri taped it in place. Twenty seconds, she said. Enignar's eyes were shut as he nodded. They left him there, propped up against the reinforced girder. As Jag gunned the speeder bike off into the darkness, scattering a pack of reptoid ground troops in their wake, he heard Tahiri's voice in his helmet speakers. What's that? It's a Yuzhan Vong blessing, she said. It means, die well, brave warrior. Behind them, the sky lit with a bright white light, as though an impossible dawn had come to this cold and sunless world. 
Your uncle asks after you. The image with Vergere's face said to Jason, I have told him that you are all well, and that no harm will come to you, now that the testing is complete. Did you test the Feroans too? Saba asked. Seekant's beaked visage turned to face her. I stand by everything I've done since I became alive. I trust and obey my own imperatives. Those being? Saba asked. The same as any intelligent entity. To live in peace. To grow in knowledge and wisdom. To love and be loved in return. Verger's smile was broad and peaceful, belying the words that followed. And if any tries to rob me of my right to follow those imperatives, I have the same choices as anyone. I can run, or I can fight. I have experienced both. Leia tried Ashpedar for the fourth time. Commander, are you there? Perhaps Commander Ashpedar is attending business elsewhere, C-3PO suggested. I'm not so sure. I'm going to see what's wrong. Miwal and Kachmane, her two Nogri bodyguards, preceded her down the umbilical connecting the Falcon to the base. The corridors were quiet as she headed to Ashpedar's quarters. She passed through the Ugnaughts and a Sullustan supervisor performing maintenance work on a power router. But apart from that, the base seemed utterly deserted. The door to Ashpedar's office was not surprisingly locked. Go back and get that engineer, she ordered Miwal. While she waited for Miwal to return with the Sullustan, she tried in vain to listen for anything through the bulkhead. What's the problem here? the Sullustan asked striding confidently up to Leia. I'm sorry to interrupt your work. Leia read the engineer's name tag. Gantry? But I need to get into this room. Why? I have a terrible feeling that something has happened to the commander. If my suspicions prove to be unfounded, then I'll take full responsibility. The Celestin slowly nodded. Very well, she muttered. Gantry stopped, frowning down at the lock. That's strange. What is it? Leia asked. The door. It's been locked from the outside. Leia's stomach began to turn over uneasily as the engineer tapped in a long string of codes until the lock finally beeped and the door slid open. The first thing Leia noticed was a smell of ozone in the air. The second was a pair of large feet protruding from behind the desk. She hurried over to where Ashpedar lay face down, a web of fine wires wrapped around her horns. They tortured her, the Sullustan exclaimed. Godels can't stand intense magnetic fields anywhere near them. Lady Vader, Cockmane whispered. I think you should see this. The Nogri female was examining the safe in the wall of Ashpedar's office. It should have been tightly sealed, but the door was ajar. When Cockmane swung it fully open, the inside was empty. Someone stole the villip. The real traitor has been here all along, and now he or she has the villip. Alarm showed on the engineer's expressive face. They could call the Yuzhan Vong down upon us. 
Leia nodded gravely. We have to find a way to stop that from happening. Wouldn't they have done it already? Unlikely, she said. They'd need to be able to get away from here first. Then they must be heading out on foot, because there are no speeder bikes left. And it takes time to put on an enviro suit. Come on. Gantry hurried from the room close behind Leia. The extravehicular airlock was locked when they arrived. Through a thick transparisteel observation window, they saw a diminutive figure working the final seals on an enviro suit. Leia couldn't make out who it was from the back, but the Solaston beside her seemed to know automatically. Her hand punched at an intercom. Tag! What are you doing? The Ugnaught on the other side of the glass didn't respond, except to hasten his efforts. There was a small, vacuum-sealed box beside him, just large enough to contain a villip. Can we open the door? Leia asked. The Solaston tapped at a keypad, then threw her hands up in frustration. He's frozen the controls! Then we have to stop him getting out. Does this lock meet standard safety requirements? Of course! Why? That means the outer lock can't open if there's a breach in the inner lock. Stand back. Yellow hot sparks flew in all directions as Leia brought the tip of her lightsaber in contact with the window. She narrowed her awareness down to the blade itself, sending her will in waves down to the very tip as it worked its way through the transparisteel. An alarm sounding in her ears dragged her reluctantly back to her physical surroundings, thinking she'd made it through the window and thereby activated the breach fail-safes. She looked up from the glow of her blade and saw red warning lights flashing, but they weren't from any alarm she had triggered. The exterior airlock was open and the airlock was empty. She couldn't believe her eyes. The Ugnaught had escaped, leaving the door jammed open behind him so they couldn't follow. The same fail-safes that might have stopped the traitor now stopped her. She deactivated her lightsaber. Can you move the base without Ashpedar's authorization? She said, turning to the engineer. Yes, but just do it. Get it out of here now! Something clattering in the airlock distracted her. She turned in unison with the Celestin to see that the Ugnaught had returned. As Leia watched, he struggled to his feet, edging away from the open airlock with his back to the window. Seconds later, Leia saw the cause of his fear. A human-shaped figure in an enviro suit stepped into the airlock. A glowing violet lightsaber raised, ready to strike. Relief tightened Leia's throat. Jaina! I came as soon as I could, came her daughter's voice over the intercom. A chill went down Jason's spine. You've decided to fight. Is that what you're telling me? That is not what I said. Sika turned on him and fixed him with a piercing stare. I said that I had a choice, and that I have tried both of the options already. I fought off the far outsiders. Then I fled the fire of the inner galaxy, seeking the outer darkness so that I might be alone, so that I might be safe. And for many years, I was just that. 
Then you came to disturb my peace. The Yuzhan Vong came first. Jason reminded the living planet. You both invade my sanctuary. We're here in search of peace, not war, Jason said. How can I give you peace? Jason shook his head. I don't know, but there has to be something. Otherwise, Vergere would never have sent us here in the first place. I could give you weapons to help you fight your war, Seacott said. Ever since the Far Outsiders' first attack, I have been examining fragments of destroyed vessels, seeking to understand the principles by which they operate. My living ships and weapons bear similarities to those of the Far Outsiders, and few of their weaknesses. Jason felt his breath catch in his throat. Was this why Vergere had sent them to Seacott? What's wrong, Jason? Seacott asked him. You don't look pleased. I guess I'm not, he said. I don't think that's why we're here. Are you trying to tell me that were I to offer myself as a weapon in your fight against the Far Outsiders, you would turn me down? Jason felt Saba and Danny staring at him, and for a moment, two words warred with his thoughts. Yes, because he was tired of death and destruction and the endless cycle of violence. And no, because he could see no other way to defend those he loved. The weight of the future might rest heavily upon what he would say next. Yet Jason felt incredibly small at that moment. With a word, he could change the course of the war, and therefore, the destiny of his people. Well, Seacott prompted, what is your answer? No. The word seemed to echo in Luke's mind, as he imagined generations of children who might not live if the Galactic Alliance failed in the fight against the Yuzhan Vong. He saw every species of the galaxy enslaved to the biological slave machine of Supreme Overlord Shimra. Every cell screaming rebellion, but every limb yoked in an endless cycle of pain and despair. With such images in his mind, could he really afford to turn down the means to the galaxy's salvation that Seacott might bring? You would accept such an offer? said the image of Anakin Skywalker, face tipped forward as though seeking reassurance that he'd heard correctly. Luke nodded slowly, deliberately. I would. Then consider the offer made, Seacott said, smiling broadly. Behind Luke, the Pharaohans gasped as one. This they hadn't expected, and neither had Luke. But Seacott, Raoul spluttered, what of Sanctuary? Sanctuary has already been irreparably shattered, Seacott answered. You see, the escape of the Coral Skipper from the Moon M3 was not entirely fiction. One vessel did manage to escape my net during the attack, and we must presume that that ship is returning to its masters to report on my whereabouts. 
Pelion observed the demise of the transponder with something approaching satisfaction. He smiled as Kur Hashan began to come about, preparing for all-out attack. Send the signal, he instructed his aide. I think it's been long enough. Pelion stood firm on the bridge as Kur Hashan bore down on him. Then, just as the grinning skull of Kur Hashan seemed to bulge out of the screen at him, a telemetry officer spoke up. Hyperspace signature, sir! Dozens of them! Pelion let out the breath he'd been holding as ships of all shapes and sizes appeared around Isfandia. A ragtag fleet armed with patchwork cannons and out-of-date missiles. What they lacked in top-of-the-line hardware, though, they more than made up for with surprise and guts. They threw themselves against the warship and its attendant craft, pounding Dovin basils and cutting great swaths out of Yorick Carl. Incoming transmission, his comm officer announced. It's from the enemy. Pelion smiled. Vorik's hideous visage appeared before him. The commander's bridge was shaking behind him, and the image was fuzzy, as though the room was filling with smoke. I take it you wish to surrender, Vorik? The warrior snarled. You may kill us, but you will not defeat us. You will never defeat us. With a roar from the commander, the communication ended. Pelion knew what was about to happen. Fold shields immediately! He's going to blow his drives! The commander's final gesture was wasted. For all the fury of the dying warship, all the energy expended in one wild rush, and all the Yuzhan Vong lives lost, it did little more than nudge right to rule slightly off course. Transmission from Pride of Salonia. Put it through, Pelion ordered. He turned as a hollow image of Captain Main appeared behind him. Congratulations, Grand Admiral. I presume you knew all along what was going to happen. That Vorik would self-destruct rather than surrender? No. But it was a good bet he'd prefer to go out kicking. Actually, I was referring to the other ships. Where did they come from? Who are they? Friends of yours, I believe. They told me about Isfandia after Generis. They suggested I come here to avoid another catastrophe. They also said reinforcements wouldn't be far behind if I needed them. I could summon them by transmitting a code phrase on a particular frequency. When Vorik attacked, rather than giving up the game, I figured the time had come. That was quite a gamble, sir. You have a problem with the way it turned out, Captain? Maine smiled briefly. I'm just trying to work out who these friends of ours are. I was hoping you could tell me, Pelion said. All I know is that they're calling themselves the Rin Network. Stunned silence fell about the rain-soaked pit in the wake of Jason's answer to Seacott. He could feel Saba and Danny looking at him, uncomprehending. How could he have said that, their eyes asked. How could he have damned countless millions to unspeakable misery? He turned away from them both, not wanting their silent accusations. 
Deep in his heart, he knew he'd made the right decision. It pained him to think of what the ramifications of his decision might be for the rest of the galaxy, but he wasn't about to back down from the stand he was making. After traveling as far as you have to beseech my help, Seacott said, you reject my offer. Are you sure? Military might is not what we need, Jason tried to explain. I cannot countenance destruction as a solution to the threat of destruction. In the long run, such a victory would only bring about our own downfall. I'm sorry, but I cannot accept your offer. The image of his former teacher smiled. Nevertheless, I have decided to join your cause. Jason frowned at Seacott's unnaturally dry image. What are you saying? I'm saying that you have achieved what you set out to do, Seacott said. I shall return with you to your war. Whether or not I can make a difference, of course, remains to be seen. Vergere's image moved over to where Jason stood, his mind still numb with shock. We are done with running, Seacott told him softly, so only he could hear. We must find a way to end this war. Perhaps together we can work out which way we must go. Not just for ourselves, but for the sake of all life within the galaxy. This is Jonathan Davis. We hope you have enjoyed this production of Star Wars, The New Jedi Order, Force Heretic 3, Reunion, by Sean Williams and Shane Dick.